Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Barbican Screen Talks. Hello and welcome to this, the latest in a new series of Barbican Screen Talks where we unearth exclusive conversations with some of the world's leading filmmakers recorded at the Barbican Cinemas. Our vast Screen Talks tape archive includes Q&As with double Palm Door winner Ken Loach and pioneer of social realism Joanna Hogg. But in this Screen Talk, we hear from a director who's been described as one of British cinema's most singular voices... Brighton-based Ben Wheatley began his career directing adverts and television comedy before turning to feature films in 2009. His debut, the brutally violent and hilarious domestic crime thriller Down Terrace, was made on £6,000 over just eight days. Wheatley cemented his status as a low-budget cult hero with the likes of hitman horror Kill List, psychotic camping comedy Sightseers and Civil War Nightmare A Field in England. But in this Screen Talk from 2016, Ben Wheatley talks to The Times' chief film critic, Kate Muir, about a different kind of film, his adaptation of J.G. Ballard's High Rise. Based on the 1975 novel, High Rise depicts a luxury London apartment block whose socially segregated residents gradually descend into anarchy. Wheatley was working with a much bigger budget than previously, and his film has glossy production values and a starry cast to match including Tom Hiddleston and Sienna Miller. The director's mischievous and dark sense of humour is in full effect, as it is in the interview you're about to hear. Wheatley talks about why he found Ballard's book depressingly prescient. He reveals how his love of ABBA led to a goosebump-inducing Portishead cover, and he gives a fascinating insight into his partnership with editor and screenwriter Amy Jump, who also happens to be his wife. True to form... Wheatley doesn't hold back on his opinions or the words he uses. So please be warned, this podcast contains some very strong language. I'm Melanie Jones. Join me for this Barbican Screen Talk as we take a trip into the mind of Ben Wheatley. So the first thing I want to ask you is what drew you to the brutalism and the violence of Ballard and why did you have to make this film? Well, uh, I mean, I guess initially when I was a kid, when I read it, I liked it because of um, the sex and the violence and the drugs. <laughs> and as a 40-year-old married man with a child, I liked it because of sex and violence and drugs. Um, but also because of um, how depressingly prescient the book had become, certainly in a, in a London where it kind of, no one's really embarrassed anymore about, you know, hiding away from the poor and kind of building enclaves and all that kind of thing. Um, and also our, our kind of, when I reread the book, elements of it where they're filming everything on Super 8 and projecting on the walls felt kind of oddly like YouTube and, mm. uh, and our current obsession with social media, so... 
I absolutely thought that, and I thought also the kind of sex, the sort of orgies going on was just like, oh, Tinder, oh, Grinder, oh, you know, now. And the sort of property problems between the lower middle classes, the like middle a... middle classes, yeah. and then the upper middle, because it was a very narrow range of people fighting over small details, yeah. which is exactly what happens in London in the most depressing way. I like the oh, Tinder, oh, Grinder. It's like the beginning, <laughs> I thought you were going to break out into song. <laughs> That's the music I'd like to see. You know. <laughs> Grind, Grinder the musical would be a real eye wouldn't it? You Where are you? It. I'm over here. <laughs> One of the other things I always like about your movies is the massive credit for Amy Jump. And at the end, just you probably saw there, it said Amy Jump, Ben Wheatley. You know, she's written everything. She's taken a book which didn't have much dialogue in it, really. It was a sort mm. of book of description, a very thin book. I mean, I'm sure many of you have read it. But, um, a big thin book, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, h- how do you collaborate? I'm interested in in the two of you because they're also partners. Collaborate your, your husband and wife collaborating. Yeah. And how it works, and she edits as well, doesn't yeah, she? Yeah, yeah. And she's not here. No. No. So I come out and I take the credit for everything. <laughs> but she, on, on on this film particularly, and on on Field in England as well, is um, we. You know, this whole idea of auteur filmmaking is kind of bollocks. You know, when you've got a writer who's an editor, the director-editor credit is, a, is a, almost like a shared credit because there's so much power in the writing, you know, in, t- in terms of what the story is. And if you're editing as well, then it's like that's the whole package. So, I mean, they are increasingly becoming films made by a couple. And I don't know, there is no proper credits for it at the moment i think the coen brothers are a similar yeah, situation that, you know yeah. and, and um though i do have a film by ben wheatley at the front of this which is probably a credit i'll never take again <laughs> i had my arm twisted into that and, and it's slightly embarrassing uh yeah i mean i think that's that's the thing i mean film is a massively collaborative medium but um you know creatively she's doing a lot of most of the heavy lifting on this one to be mm. fair so in terms of the writing what happens i i th- said should we do high rise and I pulled the book off the shelf and she took it and then she went and did it <laughs> and uh, that was that was my creative that, that bit there was the bit I did and um and it's certainly not I thought was it was it the film Death Trap isn't it with Christopher Reeve and Michael Caine about writers and they like they sit with two typewriters opposite each other you know I've seen it yeah, yeah. I did it but <laughs> yeah um that didn't happen for you. No, no, no it's not. It's not my experience at all. It's more the Charlton Heston one. Have you finished? No, <laughs> I haven't finished. You know, it's like, and I, I, I kind of poke, she likes to write in bed, and I poke my head around the door and go, "Have you done it yet?" Leave me alone. <laughs> and then eventually it comes, and then it's done. So let's talk about your role then in the film, which, yeah. I mean, for me, I, I saw it once in... I have to say also, I saw it... The first time I saw it in Toronto, and I remember meeting you in Toronto at the film festival, um, it was an audience of critics, some of whom were really, really quite ancient Canadians, and after about 15 minutes, there were people sprinting for the door with simmer frames and sticks. See, I never saw trying, this. I must have been sitting try, quite no, close to the front. So I didn't see it. Oh, I see, right. Yeah, they yeah. were just desperate to leave, and this is a quite yeah. a marmite film. That Mm-mm. There are some people... I love it. You love it. But there are, there are some people very, very disturbed by it, and what are the buttons you feel you're pushing in this film? What, what, what's freaking people out in this pleasurable way for some, but not for others? I don't know. I think, I think that some people have quite a um, limited ability <laughs> to experience um, narratives that aren't completely predictable and 
Um, I think I think you know there is there are there are many movies in this subgenre of the big tower films, and if if they want, you can go to you know which is a perfectly brilliant movie, Die Hard. If you want that film, then you can go and see it. You know, yeah. of a man who moves into an apartment, kind of gets cross, um, a nasty man turns up and he throws him off the building at the end. That that has been made, and that's okay. And and also Towering Inferno, which is kind of more in the middle, mm. which is like lots of people who deserve to die mm. being trapped in a building and slowly dropping off one by one. You know, so look, I can't criticise people for not liking something because that's just rude, isn't it? Like you say, it's Marmite. I love Marmite. Can you say? What about um, Tom Hiddleston? That was a good early spot because obviously he's on telly every Sunday now, and he's yeah, he was calm. massively famous when we cast him. Yeah, you got to be lucky. fair. He was lucky, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but um, oh, really... I discovered Tom Hiddleston. This, I like this. I like the way this is going. Yeah. <laughs> um, when did you decide to pick him off the shelf? If only it was as easy as that, 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 that <laughs> casting was just picking actors off the shelf. You have to, with these, all, all projects, you have to kind of make a wish list of people you want to work with. Um, and you never get any of them, but you have to at least start somewhere. And, and, and Tom was at the top of the list for us. And it was because there's something about Tom where he's obviously, for, for, to play Lang, you need someone who's obviously intelligent, but also has a kind of a mask and he hides stuff behind and then he's, there's all these emotions coming through. You've just seen the film, I'd have to go into it, but, it, you know. So that, um, and I'd seen Tom, initially I'd seen him in Avengers. You mm. know. I'd seen him in that, and I was thinking, and the same with Luke Evans as well, I'd seen him in Hobbit, and gone, went, who's that guy? I didn't know, literally from nowhere. And, and it's rare that you see mm. actors that suddenly turn up on movies and you've ne- you don't know who they are. And then I kind of um, did a bit of research and tracked him down to his Joanna Hogg roots, roots yeah. yeah, and thought he was fantastic. And then I, I went to see him and... Um, because Jeremy Thomas, a producer, knew him because he'd just made um, Only Lovers Left Alive with him, mm. so there was a direct route there. And uh, <coughs> we went to see um, uh, Coriolanus, mm. which was just terrifying for me, being a heathen, <laughs> and realising I was going to have to talk to Hiddleston immediately afterwards about a really complicated play, which I, you know, I, I went in the bar and did Wikipedia just to make, <laughs> to, 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 to make sure I didn't come across as a complete idiot. You know. But um, yeah, it turned out all right, and there we are. What about the, I mean, the production design on this is glorious and it must have been such a pleasure to have, you know, because you've made many films in eight days on sort of 50 pence. So, you know, mm. the, the kind of previous films like Down Terrace you made in eight days, didn't you? Mm-hmm. And to go from, you know, Down Terrace, even Sightseers, Kill List, to this where you have actual money. How did you find those places? How did you decide on that 70s look and yeah i mean it's no disrespect to the other movies i've made but this has seemed to be the first film i made with a full deck of cards you know the first film we've had that we've actually been able to move the camera on a track even though it's slightly we move it on field in england but it was on a ladder that laurie laurie rosadio p had bought a little thing off the internet that would move the camera along on it i know it's, it's the, the smallest violin in the world playing for me isn't it but still <laughs> This was the first time we got to build big sets. I mean, there'd mm. been little stuff, the, the tunnels in Kill List were, were builds and stuff, but it was just, um, you know, amazing to, to get that level of control. Mm. And, and I had a massive art department by my standards and with uh, Mark Tilsley, the designer, uh, he did a fantastic job and we kind of, you know, got to drill into every kind of aspect mm. of, the, of the high-rise. 
The other thing I loved was the music. At one point, you bring in Porter's Head to do the, the ABBA SOS song. Mm. Where did that come from? I've, I've been a massive fan of Porter's Head from the very beginning. I remember even having dreams about Porter's Head before their album came out, wondering <laughs> what the music would be like. <laughs> I know, it's bad, isn't it? But, you know, I, I was obsessional <laughs> about it. And so, and then a, a few years ago, um, Amy and I were watching um, Glastonbury and they were on, and I was just going, oh, God, I love Porter's Head so much. And as, as is my... Um, habit. I looked at my phone, searching my own name, and um, I found that uh, Jeff Barrow followed me on on Twitter. Weirdly, I was like Jesus Christ, and, and immediately emailed him. And that kind of it was something that would, would you know would, couldn't have happened ten years ago. I can't imagine how how that anyone you or yeah to contact Port. He said, I don't know how you do yeah. it. So yeah, so I, was, I started chatting to him, and then it started to grow from there. And I mm. kind of went out and saw him in Bristol and chatted about the possibility of doing an ABBA cover. Um, which they were up for and that track's like the first thing the poets said have done in like seven years which is amazing in itself but also had to write to ABBA which again is pretty incredible were they you know. following you on Twitter? Or no they or weren't no, they're, not, they're, not, on, they're no. not following me on Twitter but um, they uh, he, he's Mr underscore Wheatley by the way it's uh, quite weird yeah uh, and uh, usually posting photos of my uh, train journeys so if you want to keep yeah, up to date sure. with that shit then uh, follow me but, um, yeah, and I wrote a letter to ABBA being as um, obsequious but kind of um, cool as possible. <laughs> and then at the end I, th- I thanked them for the music, which was, you know... <laughs> but I'm a, I'm a massive ABBA fan, and I'm a, you know, and, and, um, and it's not a joke for me, ABBA. It's not a piss take or a hipstery pose. Mm. It's a, I love ABBA, and, and I've done since I was a little kid, so... Well, I have a house with a room that's dedicated to ABBA or anything like that, but I listen to the music, you know... Um, mm. And they, and they said yes, you know, which is amazing. You know, I think they, they, they knew Portishead Head and they knew Jeremy and they knew Ballard. Mm. And so those things they were enough. They knew Ballard? Yeah, well, they knew of him, not, maybe, I don't know. I can't imagine that party, but, you know. <laughs> but um, maybe so, who knows. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it all came out of that, really. I'd like you to, in the audience, we want to find... First, I want to find Sienna. Where are you, Sienna? Now, Sienna know. plays Jane. She looks rather different now. Plays Jane the actress. Tell us a little bit about because you were talking to me earlier about the, the costumes and the sort of retroness and how far it went and your character. It was um, Jane Sheridan was brilliant. When I met Ben for the first time, he told me this story about this air hostess he met. Pretty much. Hey, hang on, hang on. Do you remember? Not, not, not in public. You're, you're among friends. It's okay. She wasn't. She wasn't. No you, one's recording. We, we were talking about. I was saying, you know, I, my whole yeah. life, I'd, I'd, I wanted to play a character like this and. My dream was to play a character that was like, darling, if you can't see it, I can't tell you. And you told me this story about going to an air hangar and meeting this woman who was like in a miniskirt and drinking espressos with loads of makeup on and her hair all done up. And she was about 50 and she was like, you kind of said, so what do you do? He said, <clears throat> I fly Learjets. Yeah, I'm a Learjet pilot, darling. <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and when I met Odile, who is the costume designer on this, we talked a lot about modernity, and I said, I don't think Jane's very modern. I think she's kind of obsessed with the 40s, and she's a pretty shit actress, but she's <laughs> into it. And um, she talked about modernity in a very interesting way. To me, as an actor, you know, people get all reverential about, especially this film, you know, it's like, it's the 70s, oh, it's all glamour, oh, it's, and it's trendy now because it's all fashionable. But Adia was brilliant. She just said every time someone approaches fashion or with a film, they get all excited about the fact that it's, you know, period. 
But you have to remember that at the time, it was always modern. And there was no question of that with this film. It was just, everything was modern, everything was fresh. Amy's script was fresh, everything was beautiful. I loved it. Thank you. And so, where are you? Oh, there you are. There, on the you're going to tell Listen. the story about when I lent you loads of money, Enzo. Yeah. Take yeah, the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I, what about working on... Tell us a bit about working on the set. I don't you're, remember. You're in, you're in a horrible <laughs> swimming pool, aren't you? In well, Manga. the thing the thing to say about this is that en, Enzo and Sienna are husband and wife, <laughs> and I managed to, to, to cast them... You managed to give us our second honeymoon. It was fucking amazing. Yeah, I managed to cast them completely independently, not knowing that they were married. Aww. I don't know. I think I guess it's just a judge of character. I kind of like both of them, and then, they, <laughs> and then, it, then it wasn't a massive uh, coincidence that they they knew each other. No, it was it was a shock. Sienna, it was Sienna came when when Sienna got um, her audition for for this this wonderful movie. She's going, oh my god, my god, I'm meeting Ben Wheatley on his new movie. I was like, oh great, darling, I'm so happy for you. I was languishing doing something shit, I think. And then she got it. And then about four weeks later, I found out I got a meeting for, for this job as well. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going to read for it. And I didn't expect to get it at all because I, I never play posh because Bradford people don't play posh. We can't do it. We can't stretch that far. But um, it was organised chaos. It was the most perfect place to be for an actor, I think. And I mean, I hate to preface any sentence as an actor because it's just shit. But um, <laughs> you want to be in the hands of someone who completely and utterly knows what they're doing and completely and utterly trusts you and completely and utterly basically winds you up and, and, and lets you go. And that's what this experience was. And it's, it's very, very, very rare. You don't feel like meat props. You, you are kind of allowed to do what you want to do and you know that it's appreciated and it was just absolutely exquisite. So, yeah. Thank you. I'd love to do it again. Oh, I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you in his next film? Yeah. <laughs> Which is called, it's just it's before we... By performances like this that yeah, you get yeah, more and more work. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is called Free Fire? Yeah. Yeah. Give, give us a quick line on that, and then we'll open the... Uh, free questions. Fire, yeah, we've, we've, I'm just finishing it this week, with the sound mix, so it's, um, and it's set in Boston um, in the 70s again, which is a, a favourite period of mine now, because no mobile phones, so you can have all sorts of kind of thrillery things happen where that aren't easy to get out of by just bringing up a map or something. Mm. Um, <laughs> and uh, set in Boston, obviously shot in, uh, within driving distance of my house in Brighton, and... <laughs> A thriller about um, people trying to buy guns to take back to Belfast and it all going a bit wrong, as you, as you do. Let's open the questions to the audience. Would you stick your hands in the air? We T-shirts. have a roving, roving mic. Uh, it's roving up the stairs. Is it roving then. up there? So you have to point to someone now. Oh, okay, that's a good idea. Look, you can just shout. Go on. The film set in the near future from the vantage point of 1975. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the main impetus behind that, and why not do it a different way? Two, two reasons. One um, was that a lot of the book would have been a bit knackered if you'd have done it now, mainly because of social media. So that the idea of hiding a tower away somewhere where people are going bonkers would be kind of fucked by Instagram. Um, and uh, I think it's a, moder- a reasonably 
recent modern phenomenon of the need to record everything, including your breakfast and um, who you're having sex with and stuff, and then just putting it out to the whole world. Um, and I think that, that kind of idea that you could hide somewhere without people then suddenly turning up en masse, which would happen now, I think. And then the other thing was that kind of I wanted to, and, and Amy and I both wanted to have a look at our own childhoods, which we were both born in 72, so... And, and also that idea of that period movies and sci-fi films are always about now, really, but they give you a bit of distance so you can talk about now in a way that doesn't seem too finger-pointing and specific. You know. Did you look at movies of the time? I mean, there, there was much talk of Zardos in the... <laughs> well, that's Mark Commode. He's obsessed. But you know the mirrored scene in the lift, yeah. which is sort of the double the tab- reflections t- the of the tabernacle, which is very similar but, to Sean Connery and his sort of posing Yeah, plans, but it's also it? the same as the end of um, yeah. Man with a Golden Gun, but yeah. no-one mentions that. Yeah. You know? yeah. But, I mean, were you looking at Nick Rogue from the time? Or? Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a massive fan of Rogue and Borman and Ken Russell and, all, and Schlesinger and all those guys. Mm. But um, I, I'm not a kind of filmmaker who, like, gets everyone together and watches movies and goes, just like that. It's more, it, it's more that seeps in from the sides. My official line is there, cultural echoes, rather than references, not all ripped off. You know, so it's more of a, a thing that happens, not, not a thing that I'm, like, desperate to... I'll, I'll just take a bit of this and put it in here to remind people of this. It's more, it's more organic than that, hopefully. Um, another question here. We've got, we've got the microphone. I, I thought it was it's a development, not an adaptation, it's a development of the book that was more brilliant than I thought was possible. I lo- absolutely love like it, Marmite, but I love the you. film. Thank uh, you, sir. For, for both of you. And I, I mean the script as much as the directing and, and everything else. But I want to ask you what the film's about because I think you captured the fact that underneath the veneer of consumerism, there is class hierarchy and the viciousness of class hierarchy is resilient. But is it also about what Ballard, and maybe you think, about brutalist architecture? Because what prompted that question was I read recently that Ballard actually lived in a very unfashionable suburban interwar semi. So do you think it is also about modernism and the architecture, what that can, the environment, and what that can do to people? I think I'm, I'm, I'm kind of... Um... You know, it strikes a, a bolt of fear into me to be asked to, to say what the film's about, specifically, you know, because I kind of shy away from that because it's slightly dangerous. Otherwise, I'll just do a tour of telling you what it's about and we don't have to sit through two hours of it. Just cut straight to the quick, you know. Um, and I'm not sure if the film... I don't think the book or the film is necessarily a kind of critique on post-war <laughs> architecture to a, de- to a degree. I mean, I think it's a metaphor... And it can work as um, the building can work as a building, or as a man, or as a woman, or as a as a city, or as a ta- as a country or a planet. Uh, but I think that the, yeah, any confined space where you're jamming a load of people together and then kind of putting a, a dogma on top of them is always going to come on slightly unstuck. Uh, one up here. I was just wondering if you had um, Clint Mansell in mind all the time for the soundtrack and what it was like working with him. Um, working with Clint is another one, uh, another thing of, of Twitter helping me out. It's a weird thing of like he'd, he'd use the media to talk to me by doing interviews, going, "Oh, I like Ben Wheatley; he's all right. I'd like to work with him." Did a couple of interviews like that, and I obviously found it because it mentioned my name, so I was straight in there, and um, and it was kind of, and I was like, "Wow," because I'd never really thought about Clint being in, even in my orbit, really, because he's too big. It's too, 
you know, I love I loved his um, soundtracks, and I've been following him since Pi, and and out well before being a a, a Pui fan, and could never quite make that connection. But oh my god, the guy from Pop Elite itself is now the guy who does all the soundtracks for Aronofsky, and thought that was excellent. So I kind of yeah, so he'd, he'd done that, and again he followed me on Twitter. So I was like, fuck yeah, okay. So I emailed him. It's very difficult to talk about music without sounding like a kind of late nineties enemy journalist. In terms of trying to describe music in words is difficult, and it's it's the real problem between directors and uh, and composers, you know, because it's you, you go and go, oh, it's got to be threatening but kind of light and also endearing, uh, <laughs> piquant. I don't know, you know, and they, the poor bastards have to go away and do something, or or you just lay a load of Harry Potter over it and go, yeah, like that, the temp, yeah, just copy that. So it. it it was hard, and, and um, what I love about his stuff is that there's a melody, but it also breaks underneath, and he's kind of, see how this is the enemy bit, that he's uh, discordant, but his music has got massive big tunes in it as well. So when I talked to him about it, I said I wanted something that was arrogant and thrusting, but broken. <laughs> and so it starts off, it's like, come on, we all live in this tower, it's all going to go really well, and by the end of it, it's like... Then he, he, he kind of constructed loads of these dueling kind of um, themes in it. So there was there was a Lang theme and Wilder theme and the and the women's theme. And the women's theme was very small and it slightly grew and grew and and took over everybody else's theme until it became the the kaleidoscope thing at the end. They had a lot of fun doing it. Amy's script made much more of the women, didn't it, than than the book? Yeah, it changed the dynamic a bit because they were sort of more invisible. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing about the book that we both felt was that there's lots of stories in the book, but, but Ballard kind of gives you the edge of them. He doesn't ever... You don't get those narratives. And definitely the story of the women and the story of the children is in there, and you get the end of their story, but you don't get the middle bit of it. And she wanted to pull that out just to, because she felt that the children had been kind of hard done by and the women had definitely been hard done by and wanted to push them further up in the, in the story. I think we've got room for one more question. Um, hi. I suppose in reference to you bringing up social media a couple of times just now, mm. it's made me think about these two phrases that always seem to get used to um, describe social media these days of echo chambers and filter bubbles. And it made me think to that last shot of the bubble and then the echoes of the mirrors. And I wondered if... Um, Consciously, you were thinking about social media when making it, or it fits something that's happened a bit more afterwards. Yeah, I think, the, like I was saying before, I think the social media aspect of it is from um, is from the book, you know, and and a lot of Ballard's writing, he was predicting that kind of stuff. He could see it coming down the pike that we would become increasingly self obsessed and broadcast it. Um, but I think the bubble can also be seen as as the bubble, a bubble, you know, which we, we which is the kind of the the gap between the decades almost, you know, that we always build up to this thing that then pops and then re, re reconforms into something else, and that the film doesn't really end; it just is a new beginning of something else into another cycle. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that you see the children, you know, Toby is kind of taking taking on Thatcher, and he's going to be turning into something else that we already kind of... Because we're so far ahead in the future, we already know what his life is going to be like. And yet here we are back in another 70s with, you know, economic collapse and ecological disaster and terrorism and slightly shitter music. <laughs> so, um, but that's because I'm old. I'm, I'm allowed to moan about stuff like that. Thank you to Ben Wheatley for his film, his love of ABBA, everything. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. 
Thanks for listening to this Barbican Screen Talk with Ben Wheatley. We'd like to hear from you. Tell us what you think about High Rise on social media. You can find us at Barbican Centre. And if you'd like to hear more, please support Film at the Barbican by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes or Acast or visit barbican.org.uk slash Screen Talks Archive. <laughs>